Hi, this is Shiva Raman from Johns Hopkins University. Now, over the course of this lecture, we're going to talk a little bit about a relatively new indication for CT, and that's the evaluation of patients with GI bleeding. Now, we'll start by talking a little bit about how we do it. We'll go into some detail about the rationale for why we do it. And then finally, we'll go into a lot of detail about how exactly you should go about interpreting these scans. Now, I think all of you realize that GI bleeding is a major medical problem. It accounts for a sizable number of ER visits every year, and probably on the order of 1-2% to of all inpatient medical admissions every year. Now, it is true that the vast majority of cases of GI bleeding will actually cease spontaneously without the need for any kind of intervention. But that being said, there is a relatively high risk of re-bleeding, and if you re-bleed with associated hemodynamic instability, your risk of mortality is actually sky-high, somewhere in the order of about 40%. Now, GI bleeding can be broadly divided into two forms. On the one hand, you have upper GI bleeding, which occurs proximal to the ligament of tripes. And on the other, you have lower GI bleeding, which occurs distal to the ligament of tripes. Each of these two forms of GI bleeding is associated with its own unique symptomatology. But that being said, it's not that uncommon for ER physicians to be uncertain as to whether a patient has an upper or lower GI bleed. And sometimes the clinical algorithm has to be managed based on that uncertainty. Now, there are, of course, lots of different causes for GI bleeding. Upper GI bleeding tends to be caused by a relatively small number of common etiologies, maybe about five or six different causes that account for maybe 95% of all cases. Things like ulcers, varices, gastritis, Mallory Weiss tears in alcoholics, and rarely malignancies. Now, lower GI bleeding, on the other hand, has a much larger number of common causes. There are probably somewhere in the order of 20 to 30 different etiologies that you might encounter on a CT scan. I'd say the most common things that we see in our clinical practice are diverticular disease, colitis, whether it's ischemic, inflammatory bowel disease, or infectious colitis, anorectal diseases, and then rarely vascular malformations or malignancies. Now, I think it's worth pointing out first and foremost that upper GI bleeding does not have a role for CT. Any patient with a suspected upper GI bleed needs to go straight to endoscopy. If you look at the literature, endoscopy has a great sensitivity and specificity, and it's able to facilitate treatment in the vast majority of patients. Now, even in that group of patients in whom you're not certain whether they have an upper or lower GI bleed, there's still not a role for CT. If you're uncertain, these patients need to have an NG tube placed, you're going to do a lavage, and if the aspirate doesn't have any blood and there's no evidence of hematemesis, then you're probably dealing with a lower GI bleed rather than an upper GI bleed. Now, on the other hand, lower GI bleeding doesn't have quite so well-defined a clinical algorithm. Yes, regardless of what you're going to do, you need to do a digital rectal exam and proctoscopy to exclude anorectal causes of bleeding, which are very common in the ER setting. But beyond that, it's not really clear what the next best test is colonoscopy, tagged RBC, nuclear medicine scans, angio, video capsule endoscopy, and CTA. These are all relatively rational options. Now, what about colonoscopy? And I've got to be honest, when I was training, when I was a resident, I was always taught that colonoscopy was the best test. I was told that it was sensitive, it was specific, and that it could, in fact, facilitate treatment in the vast majority of patients. And the honest truth is that in a certain group of patients, that is true. If you're in the outpatient setting, colonoscopy is safe, it's very effective, and you are going to be able to treat the patient very well. The problem is that that's not real life, right? In the ER setting, you never have a good bowel prep, there's blood all over the place obscuring the mucosa, there's fecal material everywhere, and so as you can imagine, it's difficult to find a bleeder, particularly when it's small. On top of that, we all have come to think of colonoscopy as being a safe test because we all have them in the outpatient setting. 
The problem is, again, in the ER setting, these are very technically challenging studies, and the complication rates are not inconsiderable. In fact, about 1 in 50 patients may have a significant complication, and about 1 in 300 may actually suffer mortality. So this is not an irrelevant test. This is not a test without significant risks, and you have to take that into account. So putting all that together, I would argue that there's a great deal of question as to whether colonoscopy really is the best possible test for someone with an acute lower GI bleed. Now, what about a, new, what about a radiology test, nuclear medicine? Technetium 99M labeled RBC scans have been the has been the traditional modality. And this is, in fact, a very good test. It's very sensitive, somewhere in the order of 0.1 to 0.2 cc's per minute. It's non-invasive. You can detect either arterial or venous causes of bleeding. And because you can image it over a prolonged period of time, you are going to be able to detect intermittent bleeds as well. But the problem is that it is a limited modality, right? Poor spatial resolution makes it very difficult to accurately localize bleeding. And even if you can see the bleed, peristalsis makes it very difficult to say that this is in fact the spot at which the bleeding is occurring. Now on top of that, it just doesn't give you much in the way of further information. I can tell you there is a bleed, but the ER physician already knew that. I can't tell you why the patient is bleeding. I'm not going to be able to tell you whether this is ischemia, anorectal disease, an AVM, a malignancy. All I can tell you is there is or there is not a bleed. Now, what about catheter angiography? Now, the problem with catheter angio is that it is not a great diagnostic modality. It's relatively insensitive, probably about 10 times less sensitive than a tagged RBC scan. And again, you're limited by relatively poor contrast resolution. So it is not easy to localize sites of bleeding when you're doing a non-selective injection. On top of that, the patient has to be actively bleeding, and you're certainly not going to catch sites of venous bleeding. Now, that being said, catheter angio is a great modality for treating patients, right? I'd say it's at least as good as colonoscopy and probably better. But the fact that it's not a great diagnostic modality, as well as the fact that it's invasive with its associated risks of complications, which all of us have seen, means that this is not a test that you should be starting off with when you're trying to figure out why a patient is bleeding. Great therapeutic test, but not a great diagnostic test. Now, for the sake of completeness, what about video capsule endoscopy? I think it goes without saying that this is not an appropriate test in the acute ER setting. This is a kind of test you're going to be doing in the outpatient setting in a patient who has occult, chronic, obscure GI bleeding, and it's very effective in that setting. But this is not a test that's going to give you an answer right away, not appropriate for someone who's exsanguinating in the emergency room with a dropping hematocrit. If the ER physician asks you for your opinion, this is something you need to really dissuade them from doing. And so that leaves us with what I consider to be the best possible modality, and that's something new, CT angiography. This test is widely available. The protocols that I'm going to teach you about are easy to perform, very easy to implement, and don't require much in the way of training, either from the technologist or from the radiologist. It's a very sensitive modality. It can identify low levels of bleeding that are considerably better than a diagnostic angio, angio and probably just slightly less sensitive than a tagged RBC scan. But most importantly, it is very useful in terms of giving you information beyond whether or not there's active extravasation. Even if I don't see active bleeding, I can tell you, I can show you multiple other causes of why the patient might be bleeding. I can say whether there's ischemia, an AVM, a malignancy. So you can provide a cause for bleeding even when there's not active extrav. Now, like any other test, there are, of course, disadvantages. It doesn't offer the option of therapy. 
you're better off having the patient actively bleeding if you want to see active extravasation. It requires IV contrast, and it does have a radiation dose associated with it. But as far as I'm concerned, these are all relatively minor quibbles. And at the end of the day, I think if you weigh the advantages and disadvantages, CTA is really the best possible initial test for evaluating a patient who comes in with lower GI bleeding. Now, I realize that at many institutions, this is not a commonly performed test. At most places, you may be doing colonoscopy first, but... You know, we've really gotten our ER physicians at Hopkins to buy into this modality. We do many of these tests almost every day. And honestly, I think it's the best, it's the best possible test for patients. Now, how exactly do we perform these patients? Uh, how, how exactly do we go about performing these tests? Now, any patient with suspected lower GI bleeding is going to get a dual phase study. Arterial and venous phase images at a fixed delay of 25 to 30 and 50 to 60 seconds, respectively, after the injection of IV contrast. Now, why do you need two phases? And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One, you want to be able to distinguish an active extravasation from intrinsically high-density material within the bowel. So a suture line, maybe old barium, maybe ingested material, Maalox, other medications can all potentially mimic a bleed when you just have a single phase. Now, if you have two phases, an active bleed is going to behave very differently. It's going to change in both size and morphology. It's going to get bigger, and it's going to change in shape. On the other hand, intrinsically high-density material is going to stay exactly the same between the two phases. Now, there are some institutions that will acquire a third phase, typically non-contrast images, and that makes it very easy to distinguish an active bleed from intrinsic high-density material. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad idea, but we don't do that at Hopkins. And honestly, as long as you have at least two phases, you should be able to make that distinction with relative ease. Now, the second reason for having two phases is that your goal is not simply to identify active extravasation. You want to be able to diagnose the full gamut of different diagnoses that might potentially cause a patient's bleeding. So you want to be able to figure out if there's bowel ischemia and AVM, varices, and so on and so forth. And having those two phases increases the odds that you're going to be able to make some of those relatively subtle diagnoses. Now, as I'll talk about during the course of this lecture, it is critical that you don't just concentrate on the axial source images. Use the MPRs, use 3D imaging, especially maximum intensity projections, to your advantage to make some of these relatively difficult diagnoses. Now, that was the protocol we use in the acute setting. In the chronic setting, we're going to essentially do an enterography protocol. Again, arterial and venous phase images, dual phase studies at 25 to 30 and 50 to 60 seconds, brisk injection of contrast, typically 120 cc's of omnipaque at 4 to 6 cc's per second. But in this setting, we're actually going to give positive oral contrast. Now, I didn't mention earlier, but when you're looking at a patient with acute GI bleeding in the ER setting, you do not want to give positive contrast. You, in fact, don't want to give any kind of contrast material whatsoever. Positive contrast, obviously, is going to obscure any sites of active extravasation, and it's going to make your study non-diagnostic. Neutral agents, typically volumen, are also probably not a good idea. They can dilute out sites of active extravasation and make them much more difficult to identify. So typically in the acute setting, you're just going to scan the patient without giving any kind of a contrast agent orally. And in fact, that's going to allow you to maximize your throughput in the ER. Remember, these patients are sick. They're often going to be hemodynamically unstable. You want to get them through the scanner as quickly as possible. Now, in the chronic setting, you're not really worried about finding an active extravasation. These patients are chronically bleeding. These are outpatients. You are not going to find an active extravasation. So for that reason, you're going to give them volumen, something to distend the small bowel and maximize your chances of finding that occult site of tumor or maybe occult chronic inflammatory bowel disease. Now, 
the other positive of giving a neutral contrast agent like Volumen is that it allows you to maximize your evaluation of the small bowel wall and figure out whether there's subtle wall thickening or enhancement. If you give positive contrast, you're going to get beam hardening, streak artifact that may make it very difficult to identify subtle bowel wall hyperenhancement or hypoenhancement, as well as figure out that or find that subtle site of bowel wall thickening. Now, I'm not going into too much detail about some of the more specifics in terms of our protocols at Hopkins, but I would say that ctsus.com has all of our protocols and, in fact, have protocols from multiple different vendors, whether it's Siemens, Philips, GE, and so on and so forth. So if you're interested in terms of incorporating one of these protocols into your own practice, then I'd recommend you go on to ctsus.com. Elliot has all of these protocols laid out in a great deal of detail, and they're very easy to implement in your own practice. As I mentioned earlier on in the talk, these protocols don't require much in the way of technology, technologist training. They're very easy to implement. So why don't we end there? And when I come back, we'll start talking a little bit about how to interpret these studies and what kind of findings you should be looking at when you're looking at these studies in real, in real life. Thanks. See you later. Bye.